Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by N.T. Wright, aka Tom Wright, the author of a new biography of St. Paul. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Now, obviously, this is ground which, in certain senses, is pretty well trodden. Can you tell me to start with? What you're trying to do in this biographical approach, St. Paul, that sort of brings something new, as it were, to the the study of this important figure? Okay, there's two ways in, as it were. I've spent roughly half my adult life writing about St. Paul as a New Testament scholar, I mean, as me being a New Testament scholar studying him, and trying to understand him in the context of particularly his Jewish world, which is very complicated at the time, but also the world of Greek philosophy and the world of Roman imperialism, etc. So I've done a lot on that and Paul's ideas and the detailed exegesis of his letters. But then what's missing from that is a sort of rounded portrait of the person himself. We may get bits of that from the letters, but it's good to join it all up sometimes and see how the transitions work and how he gets from A to B and why he's so upbeat in 1 Corinthians and so downbeat in 2 Corinthians and that sort of thing. And there are enough hints to enable us to probe and say, so what actually was going on? And this takes the second thing. I don't know if you know the novels about Cicero by Robert Harris, Imperium and the other. Yes. Well, when I read those, having studied Cicero's speeches at school, what happened there for me was a sense of understanding even more what life was really like in ancient Rome, you know, what you'd be thinking as you walk down the street, and then seeing the speeches emerge from a real-life context and understanding as you read the speeches, oh my goodness, this is going to get him in trouble with that lot, or his wife's going to be cross that he said this, or whatever it is. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could understand Paul like that in the sense of getting inside his world and his motivations and his imagination, so that when we then find him writing Galatians or First Thessalonians or whatever it is, we are saying to ourselves, of course, my goodness, yes, he had to say that, but this is going to cause difficulties down the track because that's what I hope to have achieved. Not that I'm a novelist like Robert Harris, I'm a biblical scholar, but I've tried to write it in such a way as to bring out the character in a way which, frankly, most New Testament scholarship really doesn't do. In terms of sort of textual sources, I mean, we've obviously got the letters and there aren't, as you write in your book, there aren't that many of them in terms of of length of text. And I guess it's Acts of the Apostles, the sort of primary source about him. Acts is the primary source about him, but there's been a huge amount of controversy over the last couple of hundred years among biblical scholars as to how much we can rely on Acts and and so on. And I do point out that there are several things which we can see clearly going on in the letters which don't feature in Acts because Acts is not a fly-on-the-wall documentary of everything Paul ever did. I mean, nobody can write that kind of book anyway. All historians have to select and arrange, of course. But particularly some of the things which, when we probe in behind the letters and say, hang on, he's referring to something going on in Ephesus there. Luke doesn't tell us anything about that when when he has Paul in Ephesus. So it's a constant dialogue between the two. But also, we know so much more about the first century Jewish world now than we did even 40 or 50 years ago. This is partly because of the scrolls and because of new editions of the rabbis and Josephus and so on, that I think we we haven't got any brand new sources about St. Paul, but we've got a lot of better information about the world in which those may 
the sense they did. And that's the thing, that the letters have been kind of corralled by various special interest groups, including some churches, as though they kind of own them and they know what they mean and they address our 16th century or 21st century or whatever context. And I'm constantly trying to say, no, let's go back to the first century and actually live in that world and then feel the power and passion and and the puzzlement of those letters as they come fresh to you from within that world. Well, that's something that I think is very interesting in the book, that you're trying to sort of strip away the way in which in some ways, you know, we read Paul through, as you say, sort of medieval theology, particularly. That's right. But there's a sort of set of filters between us and us and him. And one of the ways you've done that, you say, is to kind of go back to the original Greek and talk about, say, when he talks about pneuma as the spirit, that it didn't come with capital in his age. You know, it wasn't fitted into a kind of Trinitarian scheme that came later. Right. That's it's a good example, because people sometimes accuse me. I, I did a New Testament translation of my own some years ago, and people say, why did you have the Spirit with a small s? Don't you believe that the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity? And I say, sure I do. But in the first century, as you say, Pneuma didn't come with a capital Pi. And there were many different philosophies in which Pneuma, Spirit, meant all sorts of different things. And Paul's use of that word has to make its own way in the kind of wild public life of the Greco-Roman world. And he's happy to have it like that. And actually, I think uh, that when we understand Paul and in his Jewish monotheistic context, we can see that he is talking about Jesus and the Spirit in a way which does genuinely anticipate later Trinitarian formulations. But it's getting back into that pre-formulated stage. And particularly with the medieval, the Western medieval insistence on a sort of scheme of heaven, hell, and purgatory and all that, so that when we hear a word like salvation, we assume this means going to heaven. And it really doesn't for Paul, as it wouldn't for a first century Jew. And that's perhaps the most revolutionary thing. And I've explored that in other books, but here it comes out very strikingly, I think. Will you talk actually about this divide, which, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a theological legacy, but a divide between heaven and earth and you you know you write about how you're you know as a young man your form of 60s countercultural rebellion was reading the letters of Paul <laughs> and that at the time you thought this was the whole scheme of justification was to do with going to heaven can you talk a bit more about how we get that wrong and how at the time Paul would have seen salvation and justification as what it would have meant. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm smiling as you say that, because as my students would know, a question like that could set me off for about three hours, <laughs> and I'll try and keep it down for a minute or so. Yeah, in the ancient Jewish world, the great hope, the great expectation was not that one day we would leave this world and our souls would go to heaven. Some Jews may have thought like that. Certainly Philo, the Alexandrian Jewish philosopher, roughly contemporary with Paul, has a lot of Platonism in his mix. But if you want to find somebody in the first century who really says clearly that our souls are in exile from our true home in heaven and the purpose is to get back there as soon as we can, or at least when it's appropriate, and that's what most Western Christians have believed, then the person who teaches that in the first century is Plutarch, who's a middle Platonic philosopher, emphatically not Paul, because the Jewish hope right the way through Old Testament into Testamental Judaism and on beyond is not for us to leave here and go to God, but for God to come and dwell on the earth, which is what the temple in Jerusalem was all about and what successive Jewish philosophies have, have struggled to, to express. And so the idea of us leaving here and going to a place called heaven is simply not on the 
the agenda. The kingdom of heaven is about, as Jesus says in the great prayer, um, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And Paul is very explicit in, in passages like Romans 6 to 8, which is one of the great Pauline passages, that, that what counts is God coming in person to transform this world in the person of Jesus, the person of the spirit. And it's the transformation, the rescue of this world and of us humans within it to be part of the new world that God is planning to set up and that he has already launched with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this stuff ought to be common coin among people who really study the New Testament. But as you say, we, we read it through the medieval lens, which says, ah, oh, well, the main thing is how do we get justified? How do we get saved so that our souls will go to heaven? And really, it's not like that. And certainly not for Paul, nor for John, nor for the other early Christians. You know, one of the things you points you make in the book is that not only was he deeply familiar with the Torah, but, you know, he was able to read into the what we now think of you know, the pagan philosophy. Is there a sense in which these two, these two sides have sort of been split? I mean, not only are we looking at it through a lens of medieval theology, but because we have produced a sort of philosophical schism now between, you know, I suppose, a pagan philosophical tradition, which we see as feeding into, in some sense, a sort of secular modern, the theological line seems to be off to one side and sort of hived off. Yes, the, these are major problems. And for many years, people studying the New Testament academically were doing so trying to see the parallels with and perhaps derivations from the wider pagan world, the world of Stoicism or the world of the mystery religions or the world of Gnosticism. And then roughly around the middle of last century, particularly with the discovery of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the pendulum swung in the other direction. And people have been trying for a long time now to understand the New Testament in terms of what we call Second Temple Judaism. Judaism, the sort of 400 years before Paul and the 100 or two years after him. And that's really what I've spent a lot of time doing. But because I was a classicist before I was a Judaica scholar, I kind of fairly familiar with the worlds of Stoicism and Epicureanism and so on. And I think the fascinating thing about Paul is to watch him navigating in between because Paul believes as a good Jew that all truth is God's truth. And rather like uh, Seneca himself, the great Stoic roughly contemporary with Paul, Seneca quotes from Epicurean sources and kind of laughs at himself and says, well, I know this is the enemy, but actually it was well said. And, and if it's true, it's true. So let's go with it. And I think Paul would have smiled and said, yes, that's rather what I'm doing. He says in Second Corinthians that he takes every thought captive to obey the Messiah. In other words, if the Stoics have got a good metaphor, a good line on something, he's quite happy to pick that up. But then he brings it into this essentially Jewish, but now revived Jewish framework. And by revived Jewish. I mean that he's rethinking what it means to be a loyal Jew around the Messiah. Because if the Messiah comes, and if it's clear he is the Messiah, then all loyal Jews must rally to the flag. And that's what Paul believes he's done. So, But that, of course, causes huge tension, because the Jews who don't believe in Jesus said then and go on saying, you're just corrupting our way of life and our way of looking at things. So that's where battle is joined. And yes, it's come and gone this way and that, particularly in the last two or three hundred years in Western thought, there's been all sorts of confusions, and I and others have been doing our best to try and sort some of them out. Well, this business of, you know, where battle is joined seems to go to the one thing that, of course, everybody knows about St. Paul, or think they know about St. Paul, is he had a conversion on the road to Damascus. And how are we to understand that? Because I, from your book, you're saying it's not as simple as he stopped being a Jew and started being a Christian. Absolutely. And, and that's the, really the most important thing to do is to, to get that 
caricature off the table, because as far as Paul is concerned, he has always believed in the one God who is the creator, who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And on the road to Damascus, he is confronted with Jesus alive again. And this is extraordinary. I mean, for him, it was extraordinary. For us, it's extraordinary. But in the Jewish tradition that Paul lived in, there were many traditions of what we call apocalyptic or mysticism, where people believed that there were certain circumstances in which heaven and earth could be as it were, transparent or translucent to one another. And that, again, is what the temple is all about, bringing heaven and earth together. And I think Paul was praying on the road to Damascus in one of the Jewish prayer traditions where you're hoping and praying to be given a glimpse of the God who you're serving. And he is given that glimpse, except it turns out to be Jesus. And this is hugely shocking, but also extraordinarily fulfilling. He now reads the scriptures with a sort of, oh my goodness, how did I miss it sense to it. So he hasn't left the Jewish world behind and our words Judaism and Christianity come to us heavily laden, particularly from 19th century isms where people were lining up Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., which wasn't what those people thought about themselves. So there's all sorts of baggage to get rid of. But Paul sees himself as a loyal Jew who is now following Israel's true Messiah. And there were many messianic movements in the first century. And everybody knew that if somebody said, here's the Messiah, then they might be wrong. But if they were right, then it is obligatory on all loyal Jews, as I said before, to rally to that flag. So that's what Paul thinks he's done. And that's why he then invokes those bits of Israel's scriptures which speak about uh, when a Messiah comes, he's going to be a worldwide king, not just for a private interest group, not just for one ethnic group, but for the whole world. And so hence Paul's Gentile mission. Now, in writing a kind of historicizing biography of Paul as a Jewish figure, do you see yourself in a tradition that was started, I mean, I may be wrong about this, but popularly seemed to be started by maybe Giza Vermez is Jesus the Jew? <laughs> no, I knew Geza Vermesh quite well. We were colleagues in Oxford for several years, and we we sometimes did public debates together, including on the radio, I seem to recall. Geza Vermesh was, uh, he was a complicated character himself. I won't even get into that. But when he wrote Jesus the Jew, which was in 1973, the title itself was a shock because many ordinary Western Christians had not thought of Jesus as Jewish. Whereas, of course, everybody who'd known about the actual background knew perfectly well that Jesus was Jewish. The question is, what sort of a Jew where does he fit? What makes him different? And so on. And Geza in that book wasn't doing a biography of Jesus. He was doing a sort of history of religions attempt to place Jesus and early Christianity within the first, uh, first century world, which I think comparatively few people would now think was all that successful. Geza was a historian, but he wasn't kind of a biographical historian. And he saw Paul, like many Jews have seen Paul, as the one who let the side down, the one who twisted the original message of Jesus and turned it into a complicated, rather pagan philosophical thing. And so in a sense, insofar as Geza was saying that, I've been arguing against him in one way or another for quite some time. Oh. <laughs> and I can just see the look on his face. He, he would just give a wry grin and say, yes, well, Tom, and blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> it's more that I'm in the tradition of those of people like Albert Schweitzer from 100 years ago, who wrote extraordinary books about Jesus and Paul. 
Paul and others like that. But really, if Paul was a historical character, if he really existed, if he really did do these letters, etc., then we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we know about him? What are the connections? What did his family think? Was he married or did his, did his wife give him up when he converted, or if conversion is the right word, and so on? And those questions are not often asked by people who are simply focusing on the letters, as most scholars do, sort of line by line. I was determined to try to see what would happen if we did this larger historical task. And what sort of man was he then? Oh, well, as I say in the book, if you were his friend, I think you'd describe him as a high maintenance friend, but a high quality friend. Your life was not dull when he was around. He wore his heart on his sleeve and you could always know what was going on. And again, as I say in the book, he's the sort of chap who would say boo to every goose that was going and probably to most of the swans as well. So he would he would get himself in trouble because he almost wouldn't know when to stop. And he's, he's not a diplomat. He sees things very, very clearly. And like some other you know, I've been privileged in my life as an academic to know some really great intellects, name drop, people like Rowan Williams, for instance. And when you're with people like that, you realize they see so many things, they join so many things together in their minds. And then when they say something, you realize it has all these different dimensions. And Paul was like that. He is a brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, I studied Plato and Aristotle when I was a young man, and then I came to Paul. And Paul matches them stride for stride in terms of sheer intellectual density and firepower. And he makes you think, my goodness. So I imagine if you were with him, he would make you think there would never be a dull moment. But also there is this sense of of vulnerable and passionate about him, that he is easily wounded, but he bounces back and he's passionate and compassionate. And you can tell that that he loved these people he's writing to. And though they may have found him puzzling, they basically loved him as well. They knew he was he was real. And particularly when he was with them, they had a sense that it was like being with Jesus. And that's perhaps the most powerful thing you can say about it. Do you feel that a sort of unitary sense of him comes through in the letters? I mean, are the letters, as it were, consistent? Do you feel there's an authorial voice, an authorial character that sort of goes through them? Absolutely. I mean, I've been reading these letters in the original languages for the last 50 plus years, and I read them on a regular basis, sort of go through them two or three times a year in the Greek. And so I know how they flow and feel pretty well. The one which stands out as difficult is First Timothy. If Second Timothy was the only one of the pastorals that we had, then I don't think there'd be a problem. But First Timothy really brings you up short. It doesn't feel like the same voice. That's not to say it isn't the same voice. An author can quite easily write in in a different way. Many authors do that. So I'm not saying it isn't by Paul. I'm just saying that 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 is the one that's a real puzzle. Scholars have debated all the others, of course, particularly Ephesians and Colossians. I have no problem with them. And it's partly because, again, if you start with the 16th century theology, which many, many Pauline readers do, then you're likely to privilege Romans and Galatians, and you're likely to be puzzled about Ephesians and Colossians. But actually, we shouldn't start with 16th century theology. We ought to start with the whole worldview of the first century, uh, realizing that Paul is not just Paul is not just a religious figure in our terms. Paul is founding these communities which are egalitarian, worship-based, which are philanthropic, seeking to do good to the world around, which are 
what we call fictive kinship groups, that is, people living as family, even though they're not family. This is an extraordinary thing. And every letter, this comes through. This is what he's passionate about doing, founding these Jesus-based, worship-based groups that are, that are like nothing else in the world before or since. So I think there is a radical consistency there to which all the developed theology and exegesis contributes. Perhaps it's a sort of naive point to raise, but there seems to be a sort of sense, and there has historically been some some sort of sense, that historicising a particular prophet or preacher or religious figure can in some way sort of undermine or problematise one's relationship to them in faith. Is that? Do you subscribe to that at all? I mean, does putting him into the first century context make it harder to believe in him unproblematically? Oh, oh yes, I see, I see what you mean. No, actually, it works the other way. But the sense that it might be problematic really comes to us from the Platonized Western Christian tradition, where you're trying to get abstract ideas, and you're trying to talk about souls, and you're trying to talk about eternal realities. And then you sort of stumble over the fact that, oh, my goodness, you know, he, he that's what he had for breakfast, or that's when he got shipwrecked. And what on earth has that got to do with it? But the whole point of the message of Jesus was that something was happening on earth as in heaven, that actually we're not talking about a set of ideas that you might believe. There are ideas and you might believe them, but we're talking about things that really happen in the real world, which is why the founding of these things that we call churches is so important. These are real communities living in a a new way, living a new lifestyle and doing things differently. So the more we find out about Paul, the more we think, oh my goodness, that is how this stuff exploded into the world. And at its best, it's been doing that ever since. Of course, it gets corrupted, distorted. We all no doubt introduce our own little bits of distortion. But I have found over many years, and I was teaching in the university as well as being a clergyman, a bishop and so on, that the more I've gone into this historically, the more sense it's made because we're talking about fully rounded first century reality addressing fully rounded 21st century reality. You know, we are real flesh and blood people with all our problems and passions and so on. And actually to see this stuff as fully flesh and blood stuff in the first century is really, really important. So once you've got over the sort of shock of, oh my goodness, they were real people thinking real thoughts, then I think it's enormously stimulating. And I've often had people say that when I've done public lectures and so on. Does the drawing Paul in his context and, you know, pointing out the ways in which he connects not only to the Torah and the Christian tradition, but to a sort of a sort of secular philosophical tradition. I mean, do you think there's a a way of putting him more in the mainstream of Western thought. Is that one of your projects? Absolutely. And I think one of the real problems that we've had for generations now, let me put it like this, if a Martian came to Earth and said, I've heard about St. Paul, where do I go and study him? We'd send him to a department of religion or theology, which is probably the wrong place to start because Paul would belong just as much in a department of politics or, or philosophy. Certainly, I mean, there, there is, of course, a religious impact with Paul, but our modern categories really don't catch what he's all about. And so, yes, I put him alongside Seneca, who I've mentioned, or Cicero. I put him alongside Josephus in terms of Jewish intellectuals of the first century, though he and Josephus would have had quite a bit of an argument about this and that, but they would have understood what they were talking about. 
and then particularly put him, putting him in the context of the great debates between the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Platonists of various sorts, the Aristotelians. Paul would hold his own and he would be addressing the same issues. He's interested in cosmology, cosmogony, you know, what the world is, how it came to be. He's interested in putting the whole big picture together, how we then behave, how we know things. And one of the great things that I'm excited about at the moment, in fact, I have a PhD student working on this with me, is Paul's whole theory of knowledge and how genuine knowledge transforms you as a human being so that you're able to think in new and better ways and more humanizing ways than you were before. And, and there, Paul is right on the map of the sorts of things that the philosophers were discussing around his time and the centuries before and afterwards. And he has something amazingly important to contribute. And we have belittled him by thinking of him purely as a religious figure or purely as a controversialist. Uh, he was a controversialist, but there's much, much more to him than that. So yes, he's, he's a, public, a first century public intellectual, and he deserves to be addressed by 21st century public intellectuals. Well, your book will go some way to doing that. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Tom. Thank you very much. Good talking to you.